Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. The government is currently proposing to make major reforms to the Human Rights Act, the key piece of law which protects human rights in the UK. On the 10th of December, Human Rights Day, we recorded an extremely interesting event at Goldsmiths University where I'm a visiting Professor of Law with Professor Dimitrios Giannalopoulos, Professor Francesca Klug and Kirsty Brimlow QC from Doughty Street Chambers. We don't discuss the exact reforms which will come up in a later episode, but we do talk a lot about what the Human Rights Act is all about. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students, academics, passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to support the podcast and find supporting materials, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. If I'm hard hitting tonight, it's in honour of my brilliant friend, colleague and collaborator, Jonathan Cooper, who this talk is dedicated to. He was sitting on my shoulder and whispering in my ear as I prepared this, encouraging me, no, instructing me to say it how it is with no holds barred. For if not now, then when? So here goes. It's Human Rights Day tomorrow. So let's start on a high and talk about love. Elizabeth Barrett Browning famously asked in her celebrated sonnet, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Tonight we ask, is the Human Rights Act under threat? Let us count the ways. But in prose, not poetry, sadly. We've had threats to revise, reconstruct, repeal, and now moving on from the three R's, overhaul. Every Conservative manifesto since 2010 has targeted the Human Rights Act, and there has been plenty of ammunition aimed at it in between elections. The initial shots were fired by the new Labour government in the wake of 9-11, which occurred less than a year after the HRA came into force and long before it had a chance to bed down. The then government was shocked to discover, following the Belmarsh case, that the HRA they'd introduced as a non-judicially entrenched Bill of Rights had sufficient teeth to declare the detention of foreign nationals without trial a breach of human rights. But murmurs about reform came to nothing, especially after it became evident that if the government wished to be free to prosecute the war on terror without constraints, the UK would have to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights as well, a step that was unthinkable at the time. And that's not that long ago. David Cameron then upped the stakes and Theresa May after him in calling for the repeal and replacement of the HRA with a British Bill of Rights. But after the then Justice Secretary Chris Grayling's failing 2014 policy paper exposed it as a Bill of Less Rights with an emphasis on the British, this plan largely has withered away. Yet the Overton window had been widened. Withdrawal from the European Court of Human Rights was for the first time 
in 70 years taken seriously, with the proposal that its judgments be viewed as advisory and subject to parliamentary approval. But given that the HRA has recently celebrated its 21st birthday, and the Brexit Withdrawal Treaty effectively rules out deratification of the ECHR, assuming the treaty survives, we might be tempted to convince ourselves that the Justice Secretary's latest threats to overhaul the Human Rights Act are merely a case of cry wolf. If any of us listened to Dominic Raab give evidence to the Justice Committee last week, we might have been persuaded that our rights will even be strengthened if the HRA is reformed in what he described as his smarter way. More free speech, less privacy, more British liberties, less foreign intruders, what's not to like? A little bit of tinkering here or there, but nothing major. So why be so sure this is a threat and not an opportunity? Perhaps a bit of context might help us decide. Before the Brexit referendum, dangling the possibility over and over again of repealing the HRA and withdrawing from the ECHR, often deliberately falsely presented as a creature of the EU, was a useful card to play for the Cameron and May governments, surrounded by an overwhelming Eurosceptic party and media especially at a time when withdrawal from the actual EU was still merely a theoretical possibility. But for the last few years, since the Brexit referendum was announced to be precise, political and media attacks on the HRA have gradually and quite remarkably gone quieter and quieter. I monitor press coverage of the HRA daily and have done so for the last 20 years. Sad, I know. So the contrast has been striking to me. Even the last Tory manifesto was notably less hardline than its recent predecessors. Instead of replace or repeal, the commitment was to update. But that was then, this is now. If a year is a long time in politics, Two years is an eternity in the life of a prime minister who, how shall we put it, is not renowned for consistency and coherence. Tell me, what would you do if your place in the opinion polls was starting to slide, if by-elections were no longer so easy to win, if claims to level up are starting to wear thin, if people begin to believe that corruption and double standards are endemic, and then there is that little matter of a certain Christmas party. What would you do if you can no longer rely on the EU bogeyman to distract attention in such circumstances, given that Brexit is already done? Enter stage right, the Human Rights Act. How else do we take back control now? Or rather, what else do we take back control from if not this Strasbourg meddling measure? This time to protect us from endless waves of illegal migrants crossing the English Channel, to quote MP Andrew Rossendale at PMQs last week. Or as Dominic Cummings has put it a little more directly, we could sort out the boats 
It isn't a hard problem, but that means setting aside the ECHR and the HRA. The reasons given for dismantling the HRA are nearly always linked to invasion, you will note, whether by immigrants or European laws. The Lord Chancellor, Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary, who are all Dominic Raab, promises us freedom from an over-reliance on the continental model, which is effectively what the Human Rights Act has left us with. In cases meaning wasn't sufficiently clear, an anonymous government source helpfully clarified. Since the HRA, there have been a number of cases that have ended with a more German interpretation of our laws, heaven forfend. These last statements followed Meghan Markle's recent privacy win over the Daily Mail. To promise to overhaul the HRA to curtail privacy rights is, of course, manna from heaven for much of the tabloid press, whose business model relies on reporting on the private lives of celebrities. The government desperately needs to change the press narrative at this time. Offering up the HRA is a win-win, you might say. So the HRA is the great distraction a more likely candidate than new and needed COVID restrictions, in my view, a, diver a diversion to be summoned in a form that suits the movement, suits the moment whenever necessary. But as with Brexit, there comes a time when a threat has to be acted on, or it is in danger of becoming counterproductive by building further cynicism and mistrust. My sense is that, led by Dominic Raab, who has made the destabilizing of the HRA his life's work, the decision has now been made that the time to act on the threat is right now. It may be hard to believe, but it wasn't always like this. Those with less long memories than mine might be surprised to learn that there was a time when many senior Tories were in favour of a Bill of Rights specifically based on incorporating the ECHR into UK law. Yes, you heard it right. By and large, they were much keener than most Labour politicians on this. So by the time Labour was persuaded to introduce what became the HRA in the mid-1990s, the terms Bill of Rights and incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights were used pretty synonymously. Incorporation was recognised as a means of introducing a British Bill of Rights. That's what it was regularly called. And the ECHR was widely seen as the most sensible basis for it. Why? Because the UK government had been bound by the convention since 1953, and individuals could claim convention rights at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg since 1966. What remained contentious, though, without doubt, was any demand to overhaul the much-vaunted doctrine of British parliamentary sovereignty which Labour was as reluctant to fundamentally shift as the Conservatives. This had been the main stumbling block that prevented incorporation from occurring earlier. There would have been no Human Rights Act, in other words, if the conundrum had not been resolved of how to introduce a Bill of Rights with teeth, but without judicial entrenchment. 
many lawyers and legal scholars were disappointed that the Human Rights Act did not contain a judicial strike down power characteristic of entrenched bills of rights in America or Germany and many other states around the world. But the reality was that whilst accountability of the executive of the government was increased by the HRA, parliamentary sovereignty, I prefer the term parliamentary democracy myself, was maintained in three ways under the Act, without which it would never have been introduced, let alone passed. So how was parliamentary sovereignty maintained? Well, first by Section 3, which requires the courts to interpret all legislation compatibly with the rights in the Human Rights Act, but only so far as it is possible to do so, and not if such an interpretation goes against the grain of the legislation or turns it on its head. Second, by Section 4, which explicitly rules out a judicial strike-down power of primary legislation. Instead, the higher courts are only permitted, as many of you will know, to declare statutes in breach of the rights in the HRA, and Parliament can decide whether to change the law or not. And third, by requiring our courts to only take account of Strasbourg jurisprudence, but not be bound by it. So bearing all this in mind, what can we realistically expect from Dominic Raab's overhaul of the HRA, which one senior official has described as on the spicy vindaloo end of the menu? Spicy seems a reasonable description of the reported mechanism to allow the government to introduce ad hoc legislation to correct court judgments that ministers believe are incorrect, especially if they follow European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence. A similar proposal was aired in the Times on Monday, some of you will have read, in relation to judicial review reform, but was subsequently denied by Mr. Raab following widespread opposition. That particular kite may not fly, although Raab hinted this is still on the agenda for the HRA in his evidence to the Joint Committee on Human Rights just yesterday. Expectations have been raised of an overhaul, so they have to be filled to a degree. Just re-emphasizing what I've suggested is already in the HRA, such as the particular regard to the importance of free expression under Section 12, or the freedom to develop a domestic jurisprudence unbound by Strasbourg under Section 2, which our courts already clearly do, will not cut the mustard of an overhaul. This leaves Section 3, the interpretation clause I just described, as a very minimum of what we can expect. This will be changed. I cannot see it being left unscathed. If it were to be mutilated so that the courts can, not must, merely take the Human Rights Act into account, but not if an interpretation changes the sovereign will of Parliament, regardless of what that will is, this could eviscerate the Human Rights Act by stealth. Although a technical sounding shift to many, 
that will be presented as returning common sense to human rights and freeing us from the yoke of Strasbourg, nevertheless, its impact would be substantial. Without Section 3 as currently drafted, for example, the courts would not have been able to reinterpret the Rent Act, to recognise gay partners as entitled to the same protection from eviction as other spouses, long before equal marriage laws were introduced. For Jonathan Cooper, this famous 2002 case, Gaydon versus Mendoza, was pivotal for what the Human Rights Act could and did achieve, pointing out that before the HRA, over two thirds of the violations of the ECHR by the UK government were through primary or secondary legislation. Jonathan explained that for the community I belong to, the LGBTQ community, legislation was the main tool of oppression against us, leading him to insist that parliament is the problem more than the courts. This estimation was partly based on Jonathan's own life experience, the same experience that led him to become a human rights lawyer in the first place and champion the rights of LGBTQ people and other minorities all over the world. For this reason, he was particularly worried about persistent hints that the government is coming for Section 3, which he believed would detonate the HRA. What would be the point of the HRA without Section 3, he would say. How do you build a democracy for everyone if there are no meaningful checks on the will of the majority? The threat to the HRA is part of a wider threat, in other words, not just to a range of legal protections that we are watching and unravel by the week, most recently through the borders and police bills, but to the very nature of our democracy, as layers of government accountability are reduced by a series of measures and majoritarianism overtakes universalism as surely as Omicron is overtaking Delta. As we meet, Joe Biden is holding a summit for democracy. In a populist era, it is the particular model of liberal democracy which is at stake. For if we look beyond our shores, it is not just the HRA or the Geneva Refugee Convention which are wobbling this Human Rights Day, but the very value system that drove the entire post-war human rights legal and moral edifice which states like, which states like the UK once championed when we embraced the Universal Declaration of Human Rights more than 70 years ago. I know it is exhausting to keep pointing this out, to protest, to resist, to refuse to accept the subterfuges that will be presented to us when we are told dismantling the HRA will increase our rights and free us from a foreign court. But as Elizabeth Barrett Browning also said, a quiet life can be no life at all. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Francesca, for... Uh such an enlightening, powerful, uh, hard-hitting as you had uh, promised and uh, you delivered on, on that uh, promise. Uh, there's no doubts about uh, uh, that. Uh, um, it um, set the scene wonderfully for, uh, for us uh, to explore uh, uh, 
the political aspects of uh, of this um, later on in our conversation. Um, these are at the at the center of our debate uh, anyway. Uh, before before we do that, um, you also gave us a wonderful opening to offer uh, more reflection on uh, Jonathan's uh, legacy, on Jonathan's work. Uh, um, we have uh, uh, a short video, a few minutes uh, long, around four, four minutes long, uh, that I would like us to play. It uh, just takes us back to two occasions of encounters that I was very privileged to, to have as part of Goldsmith's Law events, uh, where we had uh, Jonathan come speak uh, uh, to us. Uh, um, one of the occasions was face-to-face, -face, the other was virtual. So I would like you to excuse me for, for, for doing this, you know, bringing him back in, 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 this, in this way to be part of this event that is dedicated to, to him and his memory. Because, of course, when we look at the things about the human rights side, we have to remember its universal origins. And I'm going to keep coming back to that because this is Nero, the artist Nero's uh, painting of, uh, of human rights that he was commissioned by the UN. So it's that sort of great symbol of, of what human rights are and from that great uh, European internationalist tradition. Um, but when we're starting looking at the, uh, the why we have the human rights side and where we where it came from, we do need to reflect upon the state of uh, the UK system of government before the Act came into force. So, what did the UK look like back in the um, in the in the noughties, in the eighties and noughties, uh, nineties rather? Um, what did it look like? And we know that there was too much deference to decision makers. We've been struggling to establish principles of judicial review uh, for decades. Um, power really was um, unaccountable. Uh, and we know that the binary politics that the UK system of government is based around really did just facilitate that lack of accountability of power. Um, so famously, as Lord Chelsea referred to it, we in effect had an elected dictatorship whereby the executive really could do what it liked, particularly with the ridiculous majorities that you had, uh, both the Conservatives and, and Labour in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and there were, of course, despite this assertion of freedoms, they were very limited. I have uh, written in, uh, in the Times uh, that... Uh, uh, the, the government's omissions, uh, the delay in uh, in uh, triggering uh, and informing the response to COVID-19 uh, uh, was not just an illustration of an unfit government, uh, but also a demonstration that uh, the government was unable to comprehend the importance uh, uh, of uh, the right uh, to uh, human uh, dignity. I, I think it was that they, they chose not to prioritise it, but they certainly were taking what would be probably correct to say a more a more um, uh, utilitarian approach. Mm. The fact that people are able to say, well, it doesn't really affect me, it only affects older people or it only affects mm. obese people. Um, it doesn't, it, it, that othering is a real problem and that othering again undermines um, human dignity. Human dignity can't really countenance that notion that somehow there's an acceptable number of deaths the UK was pretty much in isolation 
uh, in adopting uh, this kind of mentality, uh, this utilitarian ethos, even if it was not necessarily incorporated into formal legal policy, uh, it was a sort of justifying this idea that at the end of the day, you know, we need to protect the economy. And if that means that uh, a few thousand people die, um, that's fine. That's acceptable. You know, that, that is uh, an output of that mathematical calculation yeah. uh, that, that we can accept. I found that quite... Uh, quite intimidating. I found that quite terrifying. Uh, uh, and I found quite striking the fact that we were completely out of tune with what was happening in other parts of Europe. If you look at the evolution of human rights in the United Kingdom and, and how they have come about, again, to be philosophical about it, that sort of Kantian concept, we've never gone through that, that process of saying, actually, you, the, the British state, the UK state, is all about recognising the dignity of others. If you compare the response again, say, to the New Zealand government, to the United Kingdom's government, uh, or the German government, or other jurisdictions, where which put dignity first, and those jurisdictions went into lockdown very early on because they the only way to ensure people were not um, the, the, the human dignity was not violated was to not expose them to the virus. Thank you. Uh, all for, for your attention. Uh, um, as I said, this is only a first uh, instance uh, of paying attention uh, to Jonathan's uh, work, and uh, we are really intent on uh, on, on doing that in uh, in the long uh, in the long term in collaboration with uh, those that know his work well and those that have uh, supported his work and, and those that have been supported and encouraged. Uh, by by Jonathan's uh, work, inspiration, and his legacy more more broadly. At this uh, stage, I would uh, like to bring uh, Kerstin and Adam uh, in. Uh, um, we we've been uh, treated to a thought provoking uh, analysis uh, by by Francesca Professor Klugas. Uh, of course, it was uh, it was expected. Uh, um, I'd be very keen to hear your your first uh, reactions. You know, some your, your thoughts, and uh, if you wanted to also provide them in the context of uh, of, of honoring uh, Jonathan, I mean, if you have reflections on on that part of the event too, uh, then uh, I'm you know, be really appreciated to hear you express them. Um, so I start with you, Kirsty. Yes, thank you. And thank you to Professor Klug for a really fascinating talk. Um, I actually found it quite moving just seeing the videos of, uh, of, of Johnny Cooper. And um, I just really want to start by uh, really setting forward again how incredible he was and he is as an individual. He's hugely missed as a colleague, but also as a friend. And uh, I find it very hard to think that we're not going to have those wonderful conversations, which Johnny had this uh, really great talent of not looking at human rights law uh, within its narrow framework and as black letter law, but looking at the purpose of laws and looking at where they came from, uh, attaching them back to natural laws, context, and really, as he's emphasised there, 
what is the objective here, what is being supported and protected, and fundamentally coming back to dignity of the person. And so those clips, I think, are very well chosen. And with laws, I think I would probably start as a comment on the Human Rights Act, that the history really always has to be remembered in that, of course, before um, World War Two. Uh, and obviously World War One, there was just no notion at all uh, of how states could be controlled in relation to how they treated their citizens, how they treated individuals. And states were trusted to look after, protect their individuals, to rule in some ways, um, balancing people's rights uh, with their own criminal laws. And then, of course, we had um, millions who were slain after uh, World War II. Uh, we had uh, the Holocaust and the horror of the Holocaust and what a state, a democratically elected government could do uh, to its people. And that then was the foundation that states could not be trusted. And that is important because that is the foundation which, which led uh, to the first international tribunal uh, at Nuremberg. And that was the start in a modern historical context of recognition of crimes against humanity instead of war crimes. And I think there was sort of a famous quote in relation to Churchill that when he was looking at that um, indescribable uh, aspect of all those civilians who've been murdered, that he, he considered that there wasn't actually a name for it. There wasn't a legal concept to describe it. And uh, then we had uh, legal concepts being um, expanded upon and, and very much embedded in an international law system of, of genocide. Um, so, International Human Rights Day is tomorrow, and everyone be aware, so it's the 10th of December, and its roots are from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, 10th of December, 1948. And that declaration, although not a treaty, was described by Eleanor Roosevelt as a kind of international magna carta of mankind. So I think those kind of foundations, which Professor Clark um, was talking about are really important to bear in mind. We should not forget the Holocaust and the horrors and atrocities from those world wars. And the international human rights laws that developed were really to stop it happening again. And out of those international laws, there was... Uh, probably the UN really pushing back and saying this can't all be the United Nations um, doing all the work here on getting states uh, to protect and uh, to support rights of their citizens. You uh, regionally also have to implement the laws. So then we got the different regional laws. And as um, Professor Clug has referred to, we got the European Convention on Human Rights, which was dealing with the Europe side. And then obviously we had um, other conventions dealing with other regions uh, on human rights. And 
Of course, Winston Churchill was a huge supporter of the European Convention, and it was in fact drafted um, uh, by well, the, so the right of individual petition, which Francesca referred to, which agreed in 1966. But you have a huge support from Winston Churchill, and you have a drafting then of the European Convention by Conservative jurists. And so it wasn't, it, it's, uh, for me, it's sad that it's become so political and that the Human Rights Act, which 1998, reason that came in was because it was a it was to bring rights home. It was really to stop individuals having to go to Strasbourg, to go to a foreign jurisdiction, if you like, to bring their case when they could bring their case in the court of England and Wales. So in some ways, the Human Rights Act was actually exercising more control over the European Convention, which is why I think it's it's quite ironic that that's um forgotten when somehow it's seen as, as something coming from some foreign force. Um, in fact, it was was uh, bringing, bringing rights home, and that was Lord Bingham's description of the Human Rights Act and its goals. So um, I think what I'd probably reflect on now as to, as to where we're at and um, uh, looking at the, the, the political scene and uh, reflecting on Professor Glug's um, consideration of here it is used as quite a, an easy way of, of placing blame on um, issues and human rights issues and uh, atrocities that are that are that are occurring and and obviously we have um, immigration uh, asylum seekers um, refugees and frankly people drowning off the shores of of Europe who would have thought that that would happen um, and, and yet we're almost becoming desensitized to it. So, but but of course, all of that is kind of blamed on. Well, this is also part of a human rights culture that is that is uh, attracting um, the wrong kind of legal decisions and sort of attracting the wrong kind of person as well to access those human rights. And it's probably slightly what Jonathan in those 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 videos was referring to. There's a kind of othering. And so it's being used in, in a way to say, well, this is this is a sort of being used by other groups. Those those people we don't really think should be having those rights. Um, but of course, when actually there has there were responses to um, the consultation on the Human Rights Act, um, some of the suggestions made in relation to Article three um, are not in any way to uh, to tear up Article Three, um, but merely to clarify uh, what Article Three means when uh, currently it's, it's, it sets out that so far as possible to do so, primary legislation, subordinate legislation must be read and given effect in a way which is compatible with convention rights. Um, I think it's a, it's a myth that there's a huge mission creep here, that, the, that there's a sort of European court overreach. And now that the courts are somehow, I've got the tags on the lawns um, of parliaments and are threatening in some way um, parliamentary sovereignty. Because when you actually look at the number of cases where there has been any issue between government and decisions of courts uh, over the last 20 plus years, 
there's very few. And often they're so misreported or, in fact, so misunderstood by politicians when they're commenting on them. Um, they, in fact, would likely have been decided in that way under other international treaties, such as the Convention on the Rights of the Child or Convention Against Torture. And irrespective of changes to the Human Rights Act, the UK will rightly still be bound by those other international treaties and also by domestic legislation which uh, enacts uh, the Convention Against Torture, uh, which is rightly applied in, in, in those cases where um, there might be uh, allegations or potential of, of inhuman uh, and degrading treatment. So I think in summary, um, where, where I would, would leave my first reflections is historical memory is so important. This is to prevent atrocities, to give rights, protections to individuals. And it's been shown time and again in history uh, to the current day, states cannot be trusted in how they, um, and it, not, not a party political aspect, it's just states cannot be trusted once they're in power, how they treat their individuals. And, um, in fact, the Human Rights Act has worked incredibly well, and there's very few decisions uh, that um, the UK as a, a state uh, should be complaining of. I know Article 8, which I don't know, Art, uh, Adam might come on to it, is always seen as the ever-extending Article 8, but laws are always going to keep march with new situations and contexts um, as we evolve um, as a population and as a civilization. So that is to be expected. Um, so uh, in summary, uh, in support very much of people like Johnny Cooper, look at the work he did in advancing the rights of uh, the LGBTQ community, which he was able to do through the courts uh, rather than waiting to try and get appropriate legislation through the courts. And so we um, hopefully will remain in support of our um, legislation, which actually is looked at with real envy from uh, other jurisdictions. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Thank you very much for this uh, guest, particularly the historical uh, analysis, the historical context uh, is important because it quickly brings to the surface uh, the contemporary paradox uh, that we are confronted uh, with, uh, uh, that uh, the current government of the UK more broadly uh, as, as a state uh, uh, is, uh, is, is opposing uh, a system for the protection of human rights that is generally seen across Europe and across the world as one of the most effective systems for the protection of human rights in the regional way, uh, as, as you explained, uh, Kirsty. And it is one that the Conservatives, Conservative Party uh, has played uh, a crucial uh, role. I mean, you, you referred to Churchill and you, you, know, you took us uh, back uh, to uh, the aftermath of the Second World War and how crucial those years uh, were in, in terms of Europe coming together again. I mean, when I 
we, we teach uh, students on uh, the, the modern and historic evolution of, of human rights, uh, that is obviously uh, a, a crucial starting uh, point. And then you, know, you, you may move uh, to the construction of the European Union as a safe space for the protection gradually of, of, of rights. Uh, uh, and, and, and then you look at the international criminal law uh, tribunals for the former Yugoslavia, for instance, or for Rwanda, uh, ultimately uh, the International Criminal Court. Uh, and then, extremely worryingly, you, you start to, to, to see evidence of a potential counter-revolution within particular parts uh, of our European uh, uh, continent, uh, uh, where uh, nationalistic populist uh, forces you know, are, are beginning to push specific countries away from the protection of these rights. So I think the historical context is extremely important, is, is really invaluable in, uh, in that uh, respect. And I'm very thankful for you also tying all this with Jonathan's uh, work. Uh, uh, Adam, so sorry to have uh, kept you waiting for, for, some, for some time. I, I, I really enjoyed not speaking and listening to um, Francesca and Kirsty, who are you know, both fantastic. And, and I really, um, you know, it was very touching, as Kirsty said, to see that video of Jonathan Cooper. Um, you know, he's, he's someone that I, I've not known for as long, I doubt, as, as either of the other two. Um, really, I, I, I knew him personally since I joined Downsy Street at the beginning of 2018 when he invited me out for lunch and we, we had a really good chinwag. And after that, Francesca and I and Johnny um, recorded a podcast together about the origins of the Human Rights Act. And Francesca's obviously um, modest about her involvement there, but it was absolutely essential and central. Um, and, and it's an amazing podcast. And then I, had, I, listened, I, basically... I listened that again, Adam, earlier on today. And it, it, it's wonderful. I mean, it uh, yeah. gives you the architecture of uh, the Human Rights Act on, on the plate. I mean, it makes it so obvious. It describes it so well. It, it's like, it, it's like the, I wanted to record a sort of reunion for the Human Rights Act. And um, I'm so pleased I did. And then I kept Johnny there for another hour and a half. And we recorded another podcast about the history of the LGBT plus movement um, in the context of human rights. And, and I think that the, the, the thing that I really learned from, from Johnny over the years was to get down to the, the fundamentals of what human rights are about. You know, dign dignity, human dignity was his, was his, was his watchword, was his, was his central um, organizing principle for all human rights work. Um, you know, he set up the Human Dignity Trust and he he situated human rights, uh, you know, in a, in in a as as a progressive tool. I mean, that that's what he. I think that's what he understood human rights to be. And I think sometimes we are. Um, I speak. I say we, but sometimes you know the the progressive community can be can, feel, can be a bit cowed by the constant you know relentless drumbeat of anti human rights um, opposition. You know this. Now, 15-year, I mean, it has been, I'll talk about it in a, in a few minutes, the 15-year campaign to weaken the Human Rights Act um, in this country, you know, which is, which is three quarters as old as the Human Rights Act itself. You know, um, it's, um, it, it's sometimes, you know, we get used to defending it from a, well, you know, Winston Churchill really liked the human, he really liked human rights, which, you know, he did. Winston Churchill was absolutely central to the, the early human rights movement. You know, the, um, the Treaty of London, which set up the Council of Europe, um, was, was absolutely driven by Winston Churchill. David Maxwell Fife, who I've, you know, I've done a lot of work um, you know, through Rights Info, Now Each Other, 
We did loads of stuff on David Maxwell Five because you know he was one of the he was a prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials. He went on to be a real sort of tub thumping um, conservative Home Secretary who was quite sort of um, anti LGBT rights, um, you know, paradoxically. But he was an absolute driving force, the chair of the drafting committee of the European Convention, and you know couldn't have been more of a Tory if he tried. But but I, I you know I've spoken a lot about and and. and reflecting what Kirsty said the the this there was this a very interesting connection between the origins of the human rights movement and the Nuremberg trials um, of the Nazi war criminals because you had David Maxwell Fife who was there as the um as the as the British prosecutor you had Hartley Shawcroft who, Shawcross who was the um chief British prosecutor who went on to set up justice you had um you know, Philippe Sands has written uh, amazingly in, in, in um, East West Street about um, about the origins of genocide, the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity from the, which which came out of directly from that from that those trials. Um, and, and and I often think that the um, the reason, but what human rights were really about? Why why was this moment in history? And it, and I think it only was a moment where most of the world came together and agreed these basic rights um, through the Universal Declaration and then through the local um, versions of the Universal Declaration, which, which you know, uh, uh, changed some of it, kept some of it, added some of it, um, you know, through constitutions. <clears throat> and I think the reason is that when, you're, when you have been through what the world went through in those two or three decades, you know, from the Great Depression to the First World War, to the um, the Spanish flu, which killed you know up to 100 million people. To the um, to the Second World War, to the Holocaust. Imagine going through uh, you know imagine we've just all, all living through this pandemic, which is which is uh, traumatic you know for the world. It's traumatic for our societies. Imagine going through that and two world wars um, and and that pandemic without vaccinations. You know it, it's it's and and the Holocaust and then. You sit to, and then there comes the Nuremberg trial where the, 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 the crimes of the Holocaust in particular were laid out in detail um, for the world to see. And I think it, it it's, takes a lot for, to, for humanity to come together. Um, you see it sometimes in, um, if you're a sci-fi fan, you see sometimes uh, in, in sci-fi films, there'll be this sort of moment where there's an, an alien invasion where you have a sort of, all of the world, all of the world's enemies are coming together. You know, all of the, uh, you know, the, the Chinese and the Russians and the Americans and everybody sitting around the table. It's kind of let's all work together. And the reason is because they've got a common enemy. And I think that the the reason for the Universal Declaration was because there's moment of clarity that there was a true humanity has a true common enemy, which is um, hatred of, of hatred of each other and the hatred of the other. Um, that that's what I really think is at the centre of um, of the Universal Declaration is that you know if you read the original documents, the Universal Declaration, the um, the constitutions of the United Nations, they were fundamentally about preventing a war which would destroy all of humanity. That's what I think it was. That that's what the moment of clarity was about. They don't mention um, the Holocaust because it wasn't called the Holocaust. It was this. I, they, they, it was aggressive war was was the real enemy that they saw, because that was the natural end point of hatred, discrimination, of hate, of of, of, of um, 
the um, dismissal of the other, of, of taking people's humanity and, and going back to Johnny Cooper, taking people's dignity. That's what, that's really what this was all about. Um, and so this set of rights was created, which, which basically described how you protect people's dignity in societies. Um, and, and I think that it, it, it was both a sort of backstop, which I think is one way of looking at the, these human rights instruments, as, as in when things just about before things get really bad, you stop them. Um, and I think that that's the early warning system, as, as I think uh, Pierre-Henri Tijen described it, an early warning system. Um, but also, I, I think that they, they are a progressive instrument and they do... When you have, and you see it with the Human Rights Act, when you put human rights into our law, you go from a position where the law is behind social progress to a position where the law can be ahead um, of social progress or can be you know, operating at the, at the same speed as social progress. Um, and, and if you listen to the podcast I did with Johnny about um, LGBT rights, he speaks um, about the, the really interesting history of the gays in the military um, rulings um, in, that came out of Strasbourg and came out of the European Court of Human Rights. And what happened over decades was people had tried in the people who were, you know, um, who were gay and had been thrown out of the various armed forces, tried to bring cases in the UK. And in the, in the English courts, the judges expressed real sympathy, but said, there's nothing we can do. That law is in statute. It's for Parliament. It's not for us. Um, and this is before the Human Rights Act. And then all of a sudden, it goes to Strasbourg. Well, I mean, after, all of a sudden, after decades of campaigning. And there's this judgment that says, you cannot discriminate. You can't just throw people out of the military for being gay. You know, it's, it should be a simple thing. But at the time, you know, it was around the time that, um, that, that, that in, in English society, um, there was Section 28. There was the, um, the, the sort of state-sponsored persecution of LGBT people, as, as Johnny would describe it and described it in the podcast. Um, and then all of a sudden you had this judgment which, which got ahead of society, which got ahead of the, of, the, of, of, the, um, of the British state. And we look back at that now and the idea that you can say, well, actually that was wrong. That was, um, they, um, you know, the courts did the wrong thing. They, um, they should have let gays be, um, be booted out of the, of the military, you know, for operational reasons, whatever it was. I think it's, it's absurd. And, and that is, that's the case with a lot of human rights judgments that decade, two, a decade, two, two decades later, they seem obvious. But generally speaking, they're a little bit, they tend to be ahead of the game. Um, and I think you see the same thing with trans rights at the moment. You see that if you read Christine Goodwin, the, the, the judgment um, uh, of the Strasbourg Court going back um, uh, over 15 years now, nearly 20 years, um, there is, you know, it's, it's a progressive judgment that had, I think got ahead of the issues. And I think in 10 years, 20 years time, when all of this, um, you know, nastiness that we see at the moment over trans rights is hopefully behind us, we'll look back at that and say, that was the right call. And I think this is the, this is the constant, um, th this is what we see constantly through human rights judgments. But obviously that is going to um, stick, stick up the crawl. That is going to um, create political tensions because there are, you know, there are progressive um, uh, aspects of society, of politics, and there are conservative aspects of society, uh, of politics. And I don't, I don't say either pejoratively, but that's just the nature of politics, right? So, but I think there is a, there is a certain enlightened approach 
And when you have a Bill of Rights, and which, are, which the Human Rights is, but the Human Rights Act is, that you accept that sometimes um, you've got to place um, discrimination, dignity, um, the, the persecution of unpopular groups, you want to place it somehow separately, or at least you've got to insulate it from politics. Because going back to the lessons of the Second World War and the Holocaust and what led up to that, if you don't insulate from that from politics, if you allow carte blanche for governments, you end up with concentration camps and with death camps. Uh, you know, as, 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 as horrifying as that is, as a thought, that one thing, that the things we see that we maybe overlook in our societies um, could lead to those places. The absolute unavoidable lesson of the Second World War and of, you know, of any period of crisis in human history is that is what happens. That is the natural course of persecution. It, it leads from one thing to another. So I think that's why we have this early warning system. That's why we shouldn't be afraid to say um, this is a progressive approach. Sometimes it does look a bit forward and it does go a bit beyond where politics is um, in, a, in a society. And that is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, I think that, you know, that's what I learned from Johnny and that's what I wanted to um, offer tonight. I think, Adam, uh, what you were just saying about the progressive approach uh, that uh, we took as a country, I think also speaks to the qualities of uh, the legal profession here, the NGO community, you know, people uh, like uh, Johnny and, and, and people like yourselves here, you know, leading uh, different aspects of this uh, work, you know, academically, from a scholarly point of view, in legal practice, in NGO practice. Uh, and I, want, I do not want us to, to take these things for granted. I mean, I, I fully appreciate uh, 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 your underlining, Adam, uh, how the Human Rights Act and, of course, you know, uh, Kirsty. Uh, and Francesca did the same thing. So highlighting the importance uh, of the legal infrastructure that we got, you know, the Human Rights Act incorporating the European Convention of Human Rights and all that playing a crucial role in uh, implementing change. But um, I'm personally very intrigued in, in how the same instrument, the same culture that, that centers on human rights, you know, that, that comes from, that is generated in Strasbourg, um, does not necessarily impact all European states in the same way, or at least, you know, you do not necessarily witness uh, change, particularly with regards to progressive uh, issues, to, to issues that may not necessarily be supported by uh, by, by specific majorities, you know, in 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 such uh, um, in, in such European uh, states. Uh, I mean, you you haven't we haven't witnessed the same uh, uh, progress in terms of sexual equality, if you like, across Europe. Uh, that, that, that's not at all the case. Uh, uh, and you could take similar examples in relation to criminal justice or the right to privacy and so on and so forth. So, so I think on, on the one hand, we, we have a, an instrument that has worked really well for, for us in, in the UK. Um, but I think that this also has demonstrated you know, the, the, the important qualities that we have as a community of, of people that, that believe in human rights, that are progressive, that are generally liberally minded. Uh, um, and, and, and so in the current political context where we fight, you know, we, or where the government fights against the, the Human Rights Act or, or has repeatedly communicated that it wants to, uh, to, to change it, to reform it, to update it, uh, uh, to overhaul it, um, that is not necessarily in line with the wider culture, I, I don't think. I mean, people have 
quite liberal human rights centered instincts in this island is is my experience if uh, if, if you like and uh, you know i i don't know about the extent to which you may uh, agree or or not i mean i'd be quite interested to to hear your thoughts in other words you know the human rights act was a good match for for the uk it, and it's uh, it's a success uh, story if if you like i don't know francesca the, you have a reaction to, to all this and having having listened to adam and, and kirsty to um, I'm very grateful to them both for going back to the, the history, the origins, the post-war transformation of what human rights we understand to be human rights, because before then there was a very different concept, which is one I think that um, many critics of the Human Rights Act often want to reclaim, which was much more that um, rights are about freedoms effectively. And in fact, the term human rights was not in popular discourse very much before the post-war era. Um, fundamental rights of man, yes, but human rights far less often. And that's quite interesting to, to, to try to trace that, the etymology of it all. Um, because I think the, the, the right was to be left alone primarily. And of course, the more you have, the more you want to be left alone. And the more vulnerable you are, the more you might need the state to step in and protect you. Uh, and that vulnerability can apply to anyone, by the way, at different points in their life. I mean, for example, women are vulnerable to sexual violence. Um, Unfortunately, people of colour are constantly vulnerable to, to hate speech, to violence by the police, by the state, also by other individuals. So, you know, the, 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 this idea that, that rights are about the fight, right to be left alone hasn't travelled well down the centuries, but it was very much the model in the common law. And a, a, if you look at the sort of things that Dominic Raab has written about, uh, and also said more recently that the Justice Secretary who is who has declared his intention to overhaul the Human Rights Act. It is about the European Convention being too involved in people's lives, um, not you know, having too much to say about what kind of society we should be. But the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of course, deliberately went out to, to suggest what a, a good society and good world would look like for all the reasons that Adam and Kirsty have gone through. Um, I think it, I was thinking as, as Adam was talking, actually, it was a bit like, cop that we've just seen witnessed in Glasgow, because there was a sense of a coming together, a moment in time of thinking, actually, we've now seen into the well, we can imagine humanity ending. Of course, there'd also been Hiroshima, we shouldn't forget that. And the, the, the kind of accumulation of hatred and othering and sheer danger that, that Adam described, I think, you know, was in the mind of every delegate. And the, those debates are some of the most enlightening things I've ever read, you know, and, and like all people, all generations, you know, born after that, you always think your generation has discovered, you know, enlightenment and truth and that the, the older people didn't really have that. And younger generations now think the same about my generation. But I have to say, when I read those debates, I was so humbled because I think it, it was like young people now thinking about the existential threat that the climate emergency is causing. That is what was in the minds of the, these delegates. But the fantastic thing was, it was delegates from all over the world, except what one has to always acknowledge, 
sub-Saharan Africa, which was still almost entirely colonized by the European powers, which meant that the European powers were trying to actually reflect that in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is an important point. They wanted to exclude, or certain, certain powers, Britain among them, at a certain point in the debates, wanted to exclude the colonized from the universalism that they were championing. And recently colonized delegates, such as from Egypt and India, absolutely weren't having any of it. In the end, the concept, the idea of universalism had a logic of its own, and it was going to win out. And it's this idea that in the end, when the chips are down and life and liberty are at stake, humanity must trump nationality, that I think underlines all the the, the jargon about the Human Rights Act and all the wobbliness that's going on all over the world, in particular in the democratic world, about universal human rights, because it represents a different philosophy to the reassertion of the nation and nativism, which we're seeing before our eyes. When I said before, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a response to a, an earlier era, if you like, an enlightenment, it's what it called itself, era of, of liberties, um, what I was getting at was that in, before the Universal Declaration, there was very much a sense that your rights were bestowed to you by your state. They came through your nationality and it was for the state to give them and to take them away. The whole point of universalism and the whole point of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in particular was that the inherent dignity of every human being meant our rights begin with us when we're born. They're not given to us. And what we have to do is, is claim them. And we, we claim them on the basis of our humanity, not our nationality. So there has to be, a, if you like, a higher force that is ensuring that individual states do not eviscerate the rights of their own nationals. And we're back into that debate. We're in a situation where we just had a borders and uh, nationality and borders bill uh, going through yesterday, I think, report stage in the House of Commons, which now endorses the idea that the state can take away citizenship from anyone that they consider could claim, not has claimed, could claim potentially citizenship elsewhere without even giving them notice, without them necessarily even knowing. That philosophy, that idea stands in absolute contrast to the universal human rights concept that we're imposed, if you like, not imposed, which were underlined in our law when the Human Rights Act was passed. So the vows are often about, you know, this baddie shouldn't be here and, you know, we should have been able to deport this person. But I stand back and I see it as a much more fundamental struggle about the whole nation of the whole notion of democracy, what kind of world we want to live in. And that is going on not just here, but in Hungary and in Poland. It's still happening in America where democracy, as Biden keeps saying, is incredibly fragile. We saw it all play out with Trump. It's happening in India. It's happening in Israel, Palestine. It's happening all over the world. States that just a few decades ago, without hesitation, endorsed the values in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, put them into their founding constitutions or declarations of liberty over and over again, and now questioning whether any of this they want it to apply to them. And going back to an earlier era, not forward, in, progressively, as so many people feel that they are because we can, we've got modern technology, but the ideas that are being screamed at us often through this modern technology are incredibly antiquated. And there comes a moment when you have to decide, you know, are we going to stand up as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights required us to? One final point, it wasn't addressed to states only, it was addressed to the people and the peoples of the world, because they knew, they knew that this moment wasn't going to last. They had that wisdom, and they put in it that you have to 
educate and explain and fight for these rights forever. And it's, this moment has now come. And we all have to decide. We might be lawyers, we might be academics, we might be students. We have all sorts of other labels we put on us. But ultimately, we're citizens and we're human beings. And we have to decide, are we going to do something about this or are we just going to let it all happen and say, well, that wasn't so bad as we watch each incremental value disappear. And I think this is a moment right now of decision. And, and, and yet, as, uh, as a people, uh, we have uh, decided uh, to opt uh, for... Uh, You know, the UK being an, an, an island, uh, an isolationist, a nativist uh, approach uh, uh, in the context of the, the debate on, on Brexit. Uh, you know, we, we took that decision as, as a country uh, to move in that direction where we, we knew we would no longer be collaborating, at least as closely as, as before, uh, with uh, some of our closest neighbors, right? The, the people that we've been working uh, with for, uh, for, for decades. And I, I don't think it's possible to discuss uh, European human rights, such as we do tonight, uh, without uh, uh, drawing the links uh, with, with Brexit uh, there. And, you know, this uh, narrative of taking back control uh, that has taken effect in relation to the European Union Uh, and, and, and I suppose uh, the, the risk that some of us have uh, uh, been saying is, is present um, and is a serious one uh, now seems to be taking uh, effect. Uh, and even if you know, we do not necessarily leave uh, the, the European Convention on Human Rights or even if the Human Rights Act stays more or less intact, uh, a lot of damage has been done. Uh, I mean, a lot of damage has been done in terms of how our courts uh, uh, think about human rights Um, in equally uh, significant uh, damage has been done on the European Court of Human Rights when it, it considers uh, cases that relate uh, to, uh, to the UK. I mean, anecdotally, we, we hear that the judges, the court is influenced in, uh, in decision-making that, that relates to, to, to the UK. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, I think perhaps we can also quickly change tack uh, here. Uh, at, at the center of our debate uh, tonight is, is, is of course, uh, the question of uh, whether the Human Rights Act is under threat. Uh, but, but I think it's also equally important to, to highlight its impact, highlight its importance, you know, the ways in which uh, uh, it operates on, on a daily basis. And in, in that respect, I'd, I'd like to come back uh, to you, Kirsty and, and, and Adam, and perhaps, you know, if, if you were able to offer Um, you know, a couple of illustrations from your practice, you know, things that you have seen the Human Rights Act uh, uh, do for you or do for your clients, if you like. Uh, can I start with you, Adam, this, this time? Then I'll go to Kirsten. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I'm doing at the moment um, this week. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, an inquest, um, which is an investigation into a death. Um, and it's a death that took place while someone was um, detained under immigration powers. Um, so this person was being deported But he was, instead of being in an immigration removal centre, he was um, at, um, in a prison in Wormwood Scrubs. And unfortunately, he took his own life. And he took his own life um, in the context of a number of serious issues with the way he was being looked after. Um, the inquest is um, what's called an expanded Article 2 inquest, um, or a Middleton inquest. And Article 2 is Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, which is incorporated in the Human Rights Act, which is the right to life. And, and the reason it's an Article 2 inquest is because the right to life doesn't just require states refrain from taking life, um, but also that when 
states um, failed um, when when failings by the state in a, in detention in prison in uh, mental health detention in uh, uh, you know in a, a police shooting um, when there are failings by the state arguably then the state must under human rights law carry out a proper and full investigation um, and that requires more than the what would you what would what would have been looked at under what used to be um, a sort of ordinary inquest, and um, so the reason that we are, we are having I'm involved in this expanded inquest, where there will be um, where any failings identified by the state will have to be accounted for by the state. The state will have to say what it's done to stop these failings happening again to protect life going forward. The reason for that is directly the Human Rights Act. Um, straight after the Human Rights Act was was passed. Almost immediately, there was a case called Middleton that went to the, the um, House of Lords um, with a judgment by Lord Bingham, who's one of the sort of, you know, the great heroes, I think, the modern heroes of human rights, um, that said the current inquest system is not, is not enough. You have to have um, more expansive investigations. Um, the, the, the image that you used to um, publicise this event was from the Hillsborough inquests, um, which were prompted, which were triggered by the obligation under the Human Rights Act, and that finally got to the bottom of, and and you know, and arguably um, uh, prompted real accountability. Um, although um, you know, people might say there should have been um, you know uh, criminal accountability, but uh, prompted the truth to come out about Hillsborough after however many investigations that had already taken place and inquests. So I mean, that's just two examples, but you know, there are. It, it's one of the great sort of unsung successes of the Human Rights Act, that, that we've created this accountability system where the state is forced to, to really understand its own failings, which, as anybody knows, even in a sort of advanced democracy, the every instinct of those in, in power is to, is to put things under the carpet. And we, we're seeing it at the moment, you know, because they don't want to be held accountable. That's just human nature. And the Human Rights Act creates a... Um, a sharp tool to enforce, to create, a, and to ensure there is accountability. Um, but unfortunately, that is also one of the reasons why it has, you know, it's unpopular with governments because governments don't like, generally, um, unless they are very enlightened, they don't like their own mistakes being um, highlighted in public and then being held accountable. But you know, just beware, um, beware, governments. Um, uh, bringing gifts of reform, human rights reform. Um, that's what I would say. The Justice Secretary in particular doesn't like Article uh, 2. Uh, he's, in his 2009 uh, work on, on human rights more, more broadly, uh, he's, he's highlighted uh, that uh, uh, courts have, have gone too far and that the European Court of Human Rights has gone too far in uh, in creating duties for the state to, to act. Uh, uh, he was particularly critical of Article 2 rights uh, having operation within the NHS or, or you know, in relation to doctors or, yeah. um, or in areas where you would expect, you would hope you know, as an individual that uh, you would be able to rely on the law, uh, you would be able to rely on human rights law for, uh, for protection. So you're absolutely spot on there about the importance of uh, Article 2. You mentioned uh, Hillsborough, uh, you know the war boy war boys uh, case uh, more more recently, or, or Grenfell for that matter, where um, 
the, 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 the case is, is being discussed against the backdrop of Article, Article 2 duties uh, to protect, uh, to protect uh, life. Uh, Kirsty, can I come to you on, on the same question of the impact that the, the Act uh, has had in, uh, in the UK? Any particular illustrations that you might wish to offer? Yes, um, probably Article 2 actually at the moment, but like Adam, I've been uh, acting for families in, in inquests. I've, I've had uh, three, three inquests more or less in a row where Article 2 was engaged. And um, two, of, two of the cases involved um, people who were patients in, in hospitals and uh, one was a, a voluntary uh, uh, patient suffering from uh, mental health issues and the other um, depression, suicidal thoughts, those kind of mental health issues. And then the other case was somebody who was sectioned. Now, just listening to Adam, I think what, and also considering the Human Rights Act, what of course is interesting is that, um, as as Adam said, Article 2 of the Convention um, means that there's a, a, a positive duty imposed on states to, to take preventative operational measures to safeguard an individual individual's life, um, which is in these cases owed to uh, a mentally ill patient, but also to a, a voluntary mentally ill patient. Now, initially, the European Court of Human Rights had pronounced itself only in cases concerning detained um, patients. And it was actually the uh, development of the Supreme Court, the jurisprudence going through the Supreme Court, that also Article 2 applies to voluntary uh, patients um, that actually influenced uh, Strasbourg in, in also incorporating that into its jurisprudence. So the idea that the law is kind of somehow imposed from the European court just doesn't reflect how it develops. And that was one example, a very important example, particularly my, my case, my the family I was representing, they um, it, it's no comfort to them. They'll that the, their son who uh, committed suicide by, he was a voluntary patient, by lying on the railway tracks, literally at the back of the of the um, hospital. This was in, uh, in Manchester. And uh, he was killed by a train. Uh, it's no comfort to the parents because they're not going to get their son back. But the coroner did find um, that the... Um, uh, the actions of the hospital probably contributed to his death and also found that the hospital um, uh, had acted in a way which satisfied that it was neglect uh, in, in, in relation to um, this, this young man. Now, all of that was within a, a, an article two framework. So very important for families who were just trying to get answers uh, as to what had happened to their son and has given them some potential legal action as well against the NHS um, Foundation Trust. So that's sort of, you know, one typical example. Other examples is um, freedom of expression to protest. Uh, I've just finished uh, legal arguments representing the uh, executive director of Greenpeace and Greenpeace for where they're being prosecuted by the Marine Mar Management Organization for dropping natural granite boulders in offshore Brighton, um, partly in protest that the MMO is not 
preventing or even minimizing bottom trawling and the destruction caused the marine environment through basically bulldozing the seabed. Um, but also, so it's partly in protest, but also it was um, as uh, hopefully to actually stop the uh, trawling on that seabed. Now, um, we're coming on to, we've just had a legal argument, but we're coming on to uh, Greenpeace's rights to protest. And how important is that in this current time when we are um, in a the middle of a climate crisis? I mean, that emergency has been declared by national government about two years ago. We've, as you say, we've just come out of COP. And increasingly, people are relying on those rights that they have to try and make change and to try and um, reach that 1.5 degrees and not go above it, which is increasingly looking unlikely. But the, 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 the planet really is at stake. So what could be more important than to have a strong legal framework uh, to support people when they're accessing their rights? So those are kind of two examples. An Article 10 um, case uh, which is ongoing and um, conclusions of three Article 2 inquests representing um, bereaved uh, families where um, there's been real failings by state institutions uh, in relation to um, their loved ones. I mean, you are right, uh, Kirsty, to pinpoint uh, the, the importance of uh, the Human Rights Act in relation to you know, issues that we're confronted with as, as we speak you know, on, on, on our daily practice. Uh, um, and, and then if we think more deeply about the future challenges, I mean, you were absolutely spot on highlighting the, the climate uh, crisis and how important uh, the position of human rights is, how important a role human rights can play in, uh, in that respect. And we could draw you know, similar analogies uh, with... Uh, uh, we are still in a pandemic, and, and, and of course there has uh, been much controversy about the role of human rights uh, in uh, in relation to, to COVID. Uh, to, to the extent that we have seen the you know the paradoxical situation where uh, people on the far right end of the political uh, spectrum uh, now using human rights as an instrument for reform or a, as an instrument to to oppose uh, the the adoption of uh, of such measures. Uh, uh, if you also think about technology and how technology is going to impact us on, on the future uh, or the continuous fight and the continuous need uh, uh, for, for equality, racial, uh, religious, and so on and so forth, uh, then immediately the importance of human rights uh, is uh, even uh, uh, you know, underlined with even, even more force. Uh, and, and, and so I think that aspect is, is important too. You know, human rights historically have been important to us as a safeguard. Um, they are key as we speak. We can use them on a daily uh, basis, uh, um, but they are absolutely indispensable too when we're looking into the future. Um, Adam, do you have a quick uh, thought on, on COVID and, and human rights Be before I ask one final uh, question to Francesca? A quick thought on COVID and human rights. <laughs> um, Look, I, I think the COVID crisis, you know, um, as people probably know, I've, I've, I've deep dived into COVID laws over the past 18 months or so. Um, and um, I, I think there's a lot to be thought of and um, analysed in the future, looking back on whether um, human rights laws have been shown as fit for purpose by this 
crisis. But, you know, um, for me, it's also been quite a sort of, in a way, quite, quite a humbling experience. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that. Because I think in my career as a human rights lawyer, we often, I think human rights lawyers, um, we, 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 we waltz into court and we tell that we, we sort of talk about how this should be done or that should be done. It's all, all lawyers. That's kind of our job. Um, and I think that there can be a bit of a, you know, that there is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we do sometimes, um, we do sometimes come at things as if human rights are the answer to all of life's problems, you know, this policy or that policy. And, and, and the courts sometimes say, look, that is for democratic parliament. That is, you know, a matter of social policy which can't properly be decided by a court. And, and, and sometimes you think, well, you say that about this, but not about that. Why? You know, and, and it's inconsistent. Or you think, well, it's not. That's not right. You know, we've got the human rights that it empowers judges to do it. But I do think with COVID, you need you know, these huge decisions um, without a very strong evidence base because it's not developed on whether to you know take people's liberty away, to lock people in their homes, to do hotel quarantine, to mandatory do mandatory vaccination, COVID passports. These are the most enormous ethical, social dilemmas. <clears throat> and I don't think anywhere in the world has really got to the bottom of what the right approach is to all of this. And I'm not sure that human rights law has all the answers. Um, and it's kind of, it, it's identified to me, first of all, how the courts are just not interested. They do not want to get involved in matters of big social policy like this, even where I think there is a genuine human rights law argument for doing so. So I think it's shown how conservative our courts are in times of national crisis. But also it's shown me, you know, the flip side of that point is that sometimes there are decisions which are too big for this early warning system backstop uh, approach to the law, uh, this human rights framework. So, I mean, that's a, a very long way of saying I'm looking forward to the next five years where we can actually catch breath and understand what 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 the heck has just happened and what it means for um, our, our human rights principles and laws. Thank you, thank you, Adam. Uh, very concisely uh, put uh, there, uh, despite uh, the fact that it's an enormously challenging uh, subject. Uh, um, I, I'm also aware that a couple of, I mean, I'm conscious of the time, first of all, and I promise we can finish in the next three or four minutes, if that is all right with our panelists. Can, can we do that? Because I, I know you have other commitments, some of you, but uh, if we can do another three or four minutes. Uh, there, there are a couple of uh, comments and questions. So uh, there is one that points us uh, directly uh, to the case of uh, Samima uh, Begum. And, uh, and I know that uh, you know, both uh, Adam and, and, and Kirsty have uh, commented on it and provided some analysis. Um, I mean, we were discussing about the operation of, the, of Human Rights and Human Rights Act uh, in our courts, and we were highlighting successes. Uh, and, and here we have a Supreme Court case that I think a, a lot of human rights experts did not necessarily uh, feel has struck the right balance between the right to fair trial on the one hand and then uh, you know, protecting national security on, on the other. Uh, I don't know, I'll open it up. Uh, any of our panelists might, might wish to, to respond to that or reflect on that? Yeah, sure. Um, the short answer is no, people can't be made stateless. So that's very established. Um, 
I think that that refers to the new borders and nationality bill more more specifically. And uh, yeah. Francesca has has offered a reflection that has has commented on 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 this. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the there is another comment. How is it how is it possible for the UK government to deprive someone like Samina Begum of a fair trial and make her stateless um, while the UK was part of of the European Convention of Human Rights? Is I think what they they meant to say here. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's a fairly it, it, it's a fairly complicated area and um, ongoing in terms of the the litigation. So I, I I'm not sure I can really comment on it in any depth in the time that we have. Uh, it, it's it's a case which what I would say is obviously it's a case which many people have disagreed with um some of the judgments um that that that, that, that are in that case and and it's and it's ongoing um but perhaps, there's a perhaps. there's a i mean there's a wider issue obviously on uh how um returning uh isis fighters are are treated and also returning uh the so-called isis brides are treated and actually, I'm working in a lot of these areas across Europe as to their, their different means of doing it. I think a real concern here is, in fact, there was a specific program which had been funded and set up by the government in order specifically to deal with cases like Shamima Begum. And then none of it was supplied. And, and that was um, a program of actually bringing her, people like her into the UK to then go through um, a, a, a system of interviewing in order to see if there was evidence of any crimes that had been committed. If there had been, then the person would be charged. And alongside that, you were having a sort of rehabilitation element. And of course, with her case, it was just simply ripped up and not applied. And therefore, we're, we're, we're left in limbo in relation to, to, to policy. So um, it really needs to be, to be grasped hold of. Um, in, in relation to policy concerning uh, people like Shamima Begum and, and others. And this is a classic case where the policy wasn't applied. And in fact, the government's left it to the courts. Thank you, Kirsty. There's also a question about the police crime and sentencing courts bill. I'm not sure we have, uh, which is you know, very well put by our student, Olivia, uh, there about double pronged attack on, on human rights that is committed through the police and crime and sentencing. And Courts uh, bill, but I'm not sure we have the time for that. Perhaps uh, one of you, if you're still around, can we? You know, we can we can try to answer by by the chat. Uh, um, I have I have a final uh, uh, question uh, for for you, Francesca. In in, in the context of uh, you know the question that was at the epicenter of of tonight's uh, event is the Human Rights uh, Act under under threat. Uh, uh, so thinking uh, about tomorrow, you know, thinking about the the next um, episodes uh, in this saga. Uh, of, uh, of governmental attacks uh, upon uh, the Human Rights uh, Act. Uh, um, we have had the Independent Human Rights Act uh, review, you know, receive significant uh, evidence relating uh, uh, to all, all the questions that they have uh, asked. Uh, um, they have explained that uh, repealing the act, uh, let alone you know, withdrawn from the European Convention of Human Rights, was not at all uh, part of the debate. It was not at all part of, of uh, you know the terms and conditions, uh, and the, the questions that they were asking, uh, uh, and so I'm a little bit uh, conflicted. You know, I'm a little bit puzzled uh, at uh, at the Justice Secretary's 
positions, you know, the positions that he's expressed, the views that he has expressed, quite polemical, quite antithetical uh, to the Human Rights Act in recent days and and, and weeks, uh, you know, indicating a quite strong desire to either, you know, move away, undermine the Human Rights Act, or even, I think, it's suggested, uh, even, you know, uh, move away from, from the European Convention of Human Rights. How can we, you know, bridge the two? I, 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 and why is the government not waiting for for or the report or the the publication of the report by the Independent Human Rights uh, Act uh, review? You know, before uh, reaching these conclusions, before communicating these positions to to the public. I mean, have they already made up their mind? I mean, I know that they have recently received the the report from. Uh, uh, from 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 the review, but uh, I, I, I think it's you know it's quite puzzling that that we 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 have uh, this inconsistency there. Well, I, I think briefly um, what I was suggesting in my talk um, was that there's two things going on. There's the reality and the rhetoric. Um, the Human Rights Act has been extremely important when you know this government and its predecessors have been in trouble to push out there, you know, to distract from the trouble and to offer something that seems to solve what the problem is. And whatever the problem is, it can be reinterpreted as being either, you know, foreigners invading, okay, you know, desperate people coming over on boats, reinterpreted as foreigners invading, you know, or it can be European laws being forced on us and you keep that rhetoric going. It's extremely useful. And of course, Brexit and the possibility of Brexit was the major player in this purpose for many, many years, but that's gone now. So the European Court of Human Rights really has no competitors and therefore on the European Convention and therefore on the Human Rights Act, the European Convention, the EU is all deliberately, and it is deliberate, uh, confused in this rhetoric and many people are confused about it. So it, it, at one level, it's, 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 you know, you'd have to be quite naive, I think, not to think that this is a political plaything, a political ploy that, that, that serves a particular part of politics very well. I mean, New Labour did this too, to a degree, but nothing like at, at, at this level. Um, the thing is, as I was suggesting, there comes a point where you can't, you know, it's called, you can't keep playing the same card without delivering, or you just create a new backlash and cynicism. And I believe we're coming to the point where they feel they have to deliver. Um, and the delivery itself will be a distraction. Goodness knows what they do afterwards because they've played all their cards. No more Brexit, no more changing the Human Rights Act. Where do they go then? But that tells me that they cannot afford to just tinker in a very small way. Um, then there is plenty of reason to believe that, that Dominic Raab was moved into this post, not just because he had to be moved for all the reasons we know from the Foreign Office, but because it has been his life's work to try to amend the Human Rights Act and to do parallel uh, processes with the with JR, although I think he's more sympathetic to JR. So there's a personal element here. I think that the independent um, commission, which is just reported, uh, uh, chaired by Sir Peter Gross, you know, was another long grass element. There have been several commissions before and they do this in order to not have to decide. So, you know, this was part of, this was an extraction from the, the manifesto, which was milder, as I said, than its predecessors, predecessor conservative manifestos about tampering with the Human Rights Act. They, they, they will 
you know, find it frustrating if the review has come up with very little um, room for manoeuvre, just simply reinforcing some of the elements I spoke about in my talk that, you know, making them work better, which reinforces the fact that this this, this act, whether you, people like it or not, just made, does maintain parliamentary sovereignty put in its broadest sense. Um, but that will not stop, I have to say to you, with absolutely candidly, it will not stop, however mild the, the independent review is, it will not stop the government from significantly amending the Human Rights Act if they're so disposed. And I, my, my personal view is at this point they are so disposed. It would be a very useful distraction for a while. I mean, it will run out because once they've done it, they've done it, as I've said. But while it's going, it will mean that a lot of the tabloids will be more reluctant to give the government a very hard time. It means there's something to unite the Tory party that's so split at the moment to appeal to what they see as their base, whether they're right or not. Uh, my only hope on the other side is that there's now been an awful lot of people, and Adam and Kirsty have been talking about some of them, you know, who cannot be repackaged re re as the baddies, you know, that the human rights had apparently helped at the beginning and did on occasion because everyone has human rights. Um, but actually, people who are backing against bureaucracy, the state, an uncaring official day in, day out, in the context of the pandemic, there are people who would have accepted, who do accept many of the restrictions, but nevertheless could not accept never being able to see their loved one in a care home, um, or that do not resuscitate notices or put on their loved one's uh, files without being told, and for no good reason, just because it's one way of dealing with the crisis, crisis in the care and NHS sector. Those people have been taking uh, Human Rights Act cases or making demands, not necessarily always through the courts, successful demands sometimes, um, to claim their human rights. You hear it all the time these days on the, on the TV and the radio. You hear people saying, this is a breach of my human rights. I think there is now a lot of people in this country who will not be comfortable with the amendments that are coming. But the important thing is that they understand them. It's going to be presented different, different audiences with, in different ways. And one way it's going to be presented is very technical, bringing common sense back, freeing us from the yoke of a foreign court. So it is, a, I have to say, the duty falls on all of us who are fairly literate about the human rights act and human rights to explain what is going on and the seriousness of it. And, it, you know, as I say, it's so exhausting. 15 years, it's exhausting. I remember every day of those 15 years and the tendency is to want to give up at this point. But somehow we mustn't go for that quiet life, which is no life. Uh, that I ended up my speech with. Thank you. Quite, quite, quite true. And I think you've been switching uh, uh, from optimistic uh, to pessimistic and back to optimistic uh, uh, with uh, an incredible uh, speed there. But I think that is a reflection, that is an echo uh, of, uh, of the harsh reality that we are confronted with. I think that there are some good elements. Uh, what we were saying earlier on, you know, the instincts of, of British society, they are liberal, they're progressive. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, this uh, has been going on for uh, for far too long, and we we've seen what that narrative has has done to the country with with Brexit. And now, I feel that there is a serious risk uh, uh, that you know we we might experience the same um, development with uh, with the European Convention. We won't leave the European Court of Human Rights. I think that's pretty clear. Not at this point, um, and, and the withdrawal treat, treaty makes it very very difficult to do it. Yeah. So so what what when so final word when when Dominic Raab said recently, you know, I've got a smarter way, as he's had the whole fifteen years to work on it. I suspect he does. You know, it, it may involve, although I suspect it won't in the first stage, re re rehabilitating that old approach 
of of the court of our courts um, um, actually declaring whether the European Court of Human Rights was right or not. Not our court, sorry, our Parliament being given the power to determine whether they will they they agree with the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights. So there may be a whittling away of its authority, and we've seen that already happening in in Russia. And, and you know we don't seem to shy away from being compared with Russia in this context. Um, but we won't withdraw from the European Convention and the European Court of Human Rights. My only fear about the fact that we definitely won't withdraw is that that will moot the, the, the reaction to the changes that are coming to the Human Rights Act and will confuse people because people are so confused about what's going on. Um, but, you know, let's watch this space. I too have to go, I'm afraid, and I do apologise for that. But thank you very much for having no. me and above all for the opportunity to remember Jonathan tonight. Thank you, thank you all uh, so much. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you, Kirsty. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for your contribution. Have a lovely evening, everyone. Thanks to our audience and see you, everyone, soon. Uh, Bye-bye. So thank you very much to Professor Dimitrios Giannalopoulos, Kirsty Brimlow QC and Professor Francesca Klug for a fascinating discussion and to Goldsmiths University where I'm a visiting Professor of Law and who also sponsor this podcast for letting us record this very interesting event. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmith's rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within the framework of social justice. If you want to support the podcast and help make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and chip in a few pounds where you can also find supporting materials. Also, please do leave a review, a positive one, if you can, on your favourite podcast platform. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time.